to this session. I, like all the other speakers, want to really uh, thank Lois and all her uh, people that work with her. It's, it's a wonderful uh, event, and very uplifting. And one of the things that I was thinking this morning about is that people are diagnosed, I think Amy said 27 people a day are diagnosed with cancer. How uplifting will that be to think that these events are happening? Even that thought of, of everywhere in the country people are spending energy, time, and money to uh, work on this very important topic of cancer. Just a quick introduction. I was here last year. Were some of you here last year too? Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's not too boring for you, really. But if you go to sleep, rest on your um, fellow person next to you. So the talk is, uh, is directed a little bit at ladies. I'm sorry, gentlemen. You hope you, you can manage this. And it's indeed a great pleasure to be here, and I'm so grateful to be invited again. Today, as you know, I think Amy said that it's every day this week in lots of places around the country are the biggest morning teas. I think she said there's 748 today and 500-something this morning all around. So isn't that marvellous? So why talk about uh, self-care and self-compassion today? That's the topic if you didn't know. Um, the reason is that one thing that is quite clear, although the whole uh, cancer diagnosis and its treatment is still not completely figured out, but we do know for sure that stress and pressure on ourselves have a role to play. So my talk is about that today. So the question is, after we find out that maybe we have a diagnosis of cancer, how are we going to handle that? How are we going to integrate that news? And, it, and in some ways, it depends very much on our attitude, how that's going to be experienced by ourselves. So our reaction to that news is crucial to the treatment and what is ahead. Now, as some of you might know, uh, Mark Amby is very special to me. Um, it's a significant place in my heart, as it was the place that we, my husband and I, came in 1977 to. Um, and I just want to start off with saying that the first memory that I had was walking around the old hospital and seeing the blue lake and thinking, oh, someone must have let their tent out. That's kind of incredible blue color. And we've had some fantastic migrant stories here. One that comes to mind, which I still blush when I tell it, um, is what I was walking over to the neighbor who was working and was standing in the front, on the front lawn, and I introduced myself and said, oh, we've just moved in next door. And she mentioned her name, very friendly. And then she said, and that's my husband. Oh, and I said, oh, that's good. She mentioned his name. And I had the two words confused. I said, oh, is he retarded? Instead of retired. <laughs> I'm still blushing about that. <laughs> so upsetting. And the other story, which is also one of my favorite ones, is my mother-in-law came to stay with us just before our first child was born. And she had been driving around with my brother-in-law, who had a white Falcon car, big car. He used to call it the big bastard. And he would drive around and be so frustrated that he put his finger out to people, obviously. And so my mother-in-law thought that that was the way we greeted people here. <laughs> so 
can you imagine the unsuspecting passers-by who saw this sweet old lady waving at them like that? So now I've got you laughing, that's good. So the fun stories, of course, they, they've now become fun, fun stories when we have dinner parties or we get together. But I remember at the time, they weren't funny for me. I felt most out of place. And I was working at becoming a person that belonged to this place. So the good girl phenomena grows its head. I wanted to be good. And just like probably some of you all here, it became very important for me to, um, you know, to fit in. And I made a big effort with that, and I hope I did well. So for us women, I think that is a big event, or not only event, it's a big phenomenon that we want to be good girls. And what gets in the way, what gets in the way for self-care there is that we put others or other events before ourselves. Don't we all recognize that? So we juggle so many priorities and we're also always underplaying our own achievements. I was hearing a story the other day about you know, people having to say what they're good at, and, and men are much better at that. We kind of go, oh, I didn't do much, it was all the other people that did it. Saying sorry for no reason, do we have people that say that all the time? Oh, I'm sorry, I bumped into you, I'm sorry. Favorite for saying of ourselves as well, and demanding so much of ourselves. Does anyone recognize these things, or just me? So what they talk about in modern psychology is that that demand on ourselves and that internal grading that we do with ourselves has a huge effect on our immune system and on managing our uh, stress levels. So the greatest angst of modern life is workism. Everything has become work now. Oh God, I have to go to the hairdresser, that's on my list. Oh, I have to do this, I have to do this. We become very preoccupied with doing things. So no matter how hard we try, no matter how successful we are, no matter how good we are as a parent, as a worker, as a spouse or whatever, it's never good enough if we don't get for. There's always someone richer, thinner, smarter, more powerful, someone that makes us feel small in comparison. And I think we women, if I'm honest, are excellent at comparing and competing with each other. So the promotion of self-esteem that was very um, prevalent in schools and elsewhere, which is how to get it, how to raise it, how to keep it, how to make it better, that chasing of that self-esteem through action has become a virtual a religion. We get angry and frustrated when we can't reach that goal of, I have to be the best at this. So just a little exercise, are you in for a little experiment here? You know, we all say we're not angry, aren't we? We women also have that sort of denial of anger. We're never angry, we just pretend. My husband sometimes says, oh God, you're very angry with me, but not with other people. So can I just get you to do this little experiment with you? If you don't want, it's fine too. Just look, maybe sit with your legs under the table and put both your hands on your lap. And maybe think of an occasion where you got really mad. It might have been road rage or it might have been when you slumped yourself against something. Just take a moment. And then what I'm going to ask you to do is to just turn the hands of the palms of your hand upwards. Like this, both hands and see how that feeling of anger might change immediately. 
That's what they talk about, is there's a change that takes place. They use this in prisons and places where things escalate. Just that simple measure of turning your powers upward changes the dynamic. That's something maybe that you can practice. I hear some laughing, must have worked. So self-esteem refers to the degree to which we evaluate ourselves, how we like ourselves, approvingly or disapprovingly, what we really feel about ourselves. And the fact that we're often coming out short means that people are continuously looking at maybe coming for therapy, getting some medication, um, whatever medication it might be, self-help hours of the bookshops are besieged by people who feel that they're not okay, that they're not good enough. Anyone recognize that? It's sad, really, isn't it? So, what can we do about that? I guess it is that notion of self-compassion. And self-compassion is not based on, co on comparison with others, not on judgments or evaluation. It's a way of relating to ourselves, as most of you probably relate to your friends and family members. Relating to ourselves, warts and all. How do you use that expression? I love that. Self-compassion involves being kind to ourselves with life's throws as challenges when we're in a position where we have unexpected news or things that we didn't expect. When we notice something about ourselves we don't like, rather than being cold, harsh and critical, have a bit of compassion and understanding. Self-compassion recognizes that the human condition is not perfect and that suffering is sometimes part of life. Knowing that, for all of us together, it helps to feel connected to one another. Isn't it often the case when someone is suffering that you develop a softening towards that person? With that suffering often comes that incredible desire to be of help to others. And people gravitate often, particularly in cancer, when I went to palliative care, People often gravitated to other, others who'd had cancer or, or others who'd had a similar issue to deal with. It's almost an automatic attraction that comes from experiencing suffering. And it's important when we go through suffering or struggles in life that we are connected with others. That's the most helpful thing. That's the helpful thing here this morning too. So loneliness is one of the diseases of this time in, in our evolution. More and more so do people not turn up to events like this. More and more community groups don't have enough members because people stay at home and watch it online and spend their time more and more insular. I've just come back from Europe and one of the things that my niece was telling me is that they are now more and more building uh, community housing where people have dinners together or go out, in, go out together in old schools and so forth in an effort to bring people together because it's seen as clearly a sort of disease of this time that people are not connected with each other, that they're not spending time talking and relating to each other. It's a common thing. So when we think of self-compassion, we need to come back to that we are innately good people. Truly, even if we make a mistake, in essence we are good. And I really like the metaphor of a bird sitting on a tree. She's never afraid of the branch breaking because she trusts herself and not the branch. She'll be able to save herself. 
And one of my clients, just last week, she wrote this most beautiful poem, which I thought she'd indulge me for a moment. She said, I've just observed something in myself. I've listened to myself. And these are the words that she wrote down. You're so hard on yourself. Take a moment, sit back, marvel at your life, at the grief that softened you, at the heartache that wisened you, and at the suffering that strengthened you. Despite every, everything, you still grow. Be proud of this. In that way, if we can relate to that, whether we're on top of the world or at the bottom of the heap, we can embrace ourselves with a sense of kindness and connection and emotional balance. We can learn to feel good about ourselves, not because we're special or super good, but because we're human beings and worthy of respect. I wanted to ask you, can, can I just share something with you? Before I left here, my little grandson was nine, said, Oh, where are you going? And I said, oh, I'm going to Big's morning tea. What's that? And, he, and so I told him, oh, there's going to be a speech, and I have to do the speech, and there's going to be a, a trading table, and there's going to be a lucky door prize. And he said, who's going to win that lucky door? <laughs> Isn't that lovely how children have this wonderful thing? So sometimes, in closing, sometimes it is said, and I just feel that so strongly this morning here, that the sky was created to, to tell us how high our dreams can be. The sea was created to remind us how deep we can dive within. And the universe was created to tell us how magnificent creation is. But no matter how high the sky is, how deep the sea is, or how magnificent the universe is, nothing can be the strength demonstrated here today of community, of being together and putting our effort together for, say, the biggest morning tea or dealing with cancer. So, with that notion, I'd like to say thank you again for having me here today. And if you're in for one more experiment, are you? Are you in for one more experiment? Have we got time for that? Yes. Okay. So it's a bit of a crazy one. Can you stand up? See if you can have a bit of room. Because we've talked about stress, I'd really like you to leave today with uh, uh, raised endorphin levels that have the hormones. And did you know if you have a fake laugh that produces the same endorphins and serotonin as a real laugh? So, shall we do a, a little laughing therapy here? Yes. Are you in for it? If nothing else, you've got to laugh at my demonstration. <laughs> so, so if you just put your hands on your belly, spread out your, your fingers, and I'm going to ask you to have a deep grandfather laugh. What people? Just be a bit humorous here to it this morning. Another go? Yep. Oh, 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 oh. oh, that's better. <laughs> yeah, good one. Well, we've got a good demonstration. You upset. So now put them on your, your middle area, and you do a laugh that, a pretend laugh, how you would laugh normally. <laughs> Come on. 
Everyone is real self-conscious, doesn't matter. And now, put your hands on your head. On your head, on your beautiful hair. And you did so well this morning. And have a baby laugh. Blood test from you now, they would see that you're almost.